Hello, Pat. Hello, Michael. <laughs> um, you both have really rich backgrounds and you've led quite diverse lives. And um, I'm wondering if you can tell us why you decided to live off grid. What was that moment and what were the reasons for uh, choosing this type of life? Um, well, for me, it started in 1976, which is a long time ago now, when my then husband and I decided to live without the trappings of society or see if we could live without the trappings of society, like dustbin men and um, food in the supermarket. And well, we did have cars, so we never went that far. Anyway, so we bought a small holding in Mid Wales, which was the only place where we could afford to buy anywhere with land. It wasn't for any other reason, to be honest. We failed to notice that in 1976, the whole country was dry, apart from this little patch of land that we bought in Wales, which was green. However, that was because it floods where we bought, and uh, so it was rich and fertile land from the runoff from the flood waters uh -huh. okay so that that's why we came out also it followed a trip of us to some relatives in california where the person we were staying with healed people through food mm -hmm. so we became interested in food for health so we decided we needed to grow our own food mm -hmm. in order to get the right food in the mm -hmm. right condition for ourselves. Is this because you were dealing with like uh, health conditions or had you previously eaten a healthy diet? I can't say I'd ever thought about diet particularly before, um, but I suffered a lot from hay fever mm -hmm. and other mucus type conditions. So Eileen, who was our consultant in California, mm -hmm gave us a diet sheet and I followed it and I didn't have hay fever anymore. And my husband mm -hmm. suffered from sort of hyperthyroidism. Mm -hmm. So he would be going round and round in circles and not achieving very much mentally. And he's also suffered from some depressions. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, we found it was so beneficial. We couldn't not do it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so that's me <laughs> mm. and how did you decide to get into this lifestyle Michael um well I didn't really because I sort of more or less when I wasn't at an English boarding school we basically lived off grid in the, high up in the mountains of Norway um in a sort of extended log cabin and actually we weren't quite off grid to be honest we had a hot plate which was quite an innovation um and we had an outside tap, which if you pump the pump long enough, we sometimes got water. And we had an outside loo, which is about 80 yards away from the house. Um, so that was like home, really. So when I no longer needed to work in London, I just decided, well, I might as well go back to my roots and mm -hmm. live in the hills, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, which and I'm not inherently civilized anyway. I don't, <laughs> I don't actually. <laughs> like civilization very much. <laughs> I like people and socializing, but I really, I, I, 
the more time I can spend out in civilization, the better, really. So you feel yeah. much more comfortable in hills. I feel a different person. Yeah. Yeah. Even cooking on fire and carrying your water. Yeah, it was it was a wonderful childhood actually. Yeah. 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 So instead of going back to the hills of Norway, um, you came to Wales. Was there any reason for that? Um, that was just, um, it was the nearest I could find to Norway, really, without going back to Norway, basically. Uh -huh. um, so I looked at this one house and just bought it. Uh, as simple as that. Uh -huh. It was also actually an experiment to see what it would be like just to move from my roots in Sussex to, to anywhere and see what happened. Mm -hmm. And gradually life starts up. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. it's, it was interesting. Mm -hmm. so, so now I know I could live anywhere. I could live in Mongolia and I'd be fine. Aha, uh -huh. you have the experience of starting. Yeah. And you could start again, yeah. looking yeah. at the environment, the climate, yeah. what the needs are. Whatever, yeah. Uh-huh, yeah. uh -huh. well, this house is amazing. I mean, did you say it's 500 years old? I would say probably. that, yeah. Yeah. It yeah. will take a few hundred years. Uh -huh. So so you've um, worked with the initial frame of this house and built an addition on and put in a lot of... Um, infrastructure. Infrastructure, energy infrastructure, mm. water infrastructure. Um, what were the initial steps and challenges for... Well, I want to ask for each of you. Yeah, what would you say? Yeah. I think for me, it was the finding out that nature demanded its own um, worth ethic, work ethic. Mm -hmm. You know, you just can't not do things at the time that nature says you have to do it. Right. When you're growing things, for instance, it's no good thinking on Monday morning, I'm going to harvest the tomatoes and you go out there on Monday morning and they're not ripe so you can't you know uh -huh. so you have to work with nature all the time uh -huh. so that was a very big um, learning curve you think you're coming out to the country to be free and do whatever you like whenever you like <laughs> <laughs> it's not really like that not if you want to grow your own food yeah you're completely dependent actually on the mm. patterns of the wind and the rain yeah. and the sun and you get to know, you get to know your place. So you get to know what's appropriate at what time, you know, because each individual property or patch of land is different from another one. So yeah. although you can take your inherent, your learned skills, you can't necessarily do exactly the same somewhere else as you did in the first place. So it sounds like there was a, deep or long process of getting to know mm. the place mm. where you are inhabiting and living yeah. on a totally um, more profound level. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Would you say that um, you have a kinship with the nature here or what is that relationship like? How has it grown and come alive? Um, well, for me, Ever since we moved away from suburbia in 76, it was growing things organically. So it's getting to know what the organic balance of the land is. And although you may have to do interventions to start with, 
as the years progress, you get to know a bit more about your plot and then you can do things slightly more organically than perhaps you could in the beginning. So it's, it's getting the land back into balance, which probably if it hadn't been grown organically beforehand, it wouldn't be in balance. It would be all out of balance. Yeah, maybe more or less, you know, yeah. but it won't be in balance. So, so we had millions and millions of slugs here, for, for instance, and snails to start with. Mm -hmm. And it was a real job to try and grow something that didn't get eaten. Mm -hmm. But now it's okay. You know, we just, it gets itself managed. It's, it's uh, self managed. This, there are a few slugs yeah. in harmony with yeah. the overall. Yeah, apparently it's fine. Place. Yeah. yeah. They can have their little bit and yeah. you can have what you need. <laughs> sort of, yes. <laughs> yeah. Of course, when the plants are very small and tender and vulnerable, you learn how to protect them from danger. So I grow them in modules and don't put them out until they're big enough to withstand the ravages of nature. Uh -huh. Things like that. Uh -huh. That's what we have to do here. You don't necessarily have to do it in another part of the country. Right. We're in beautiful, wet, yes. vibrant whales. With where... lots of stone walls where things can hide in. So I don't know about Michael on that score. Yeah, well, uh, we have a pond which produces hundreds and literally hundreds of frogs. So they help to control the wildlife. Uh -huh. uh, and yeah, uh, and we have a cat, which is a quite an important part of, the, of vegetable growing mm -hmm. because she controls the wildlife. Yeah, she's quite a prolific hunter. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she takes life pretty seriously, uh -huh. except in the winter, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you need her hunting, she's out there. Yeah, she is. She is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Uh -huh. Um, in terms of the infrastructure of the house. Oh, that's Michael's department. Yeah, tell us a little bit about the initial steps and challenges here. It's uh -huh. an amazing story. Well, the first thing we did was build the house because the bit we're in now we built um, with an extremely sophisticated building contract in that I was chatting to my, our neighbor, David, who's a farmer outside in the garden. And he said, have you got a building yet? To which I said, no, I haven't got around to it. I haven't got that far yet. To which David said, well, would you like me to do it? So I immediately said, yes. So we built the house with me and David and Pat, his the support staff, David's son, who was about 7, 16, um, mm. and <laughs> miscellaneous members of the community. <laughs> and we had so much fun. Uh -huh. <laughs> and it was um, because I got a background in the film business. I'm really quite into this idea of uh, what's called the servant manager that teams can work really well if you've got a manager who understands that his job is to support the people who are doing the actual work. Mm -hmm. That works. Mm -hmm. um, if, if our National Health Service could learn that, it would be a completely different organization. Yeah. Um, and then we did do something interesting, which we employed a really distinguished and expensive architect just to elaborate our basic idea. Mm -hmm. And that actually saved us a lot of money Mm -hmm. uh, and we had really professional drawings and things, so that was mm -hmm. good. Uh, yeah, and then one thing's come after another, really. Um, well, at that point, we weren't at all um, off-grid, were we? 
We didn't. No, we won't. No. And no. It, then we put no. in the solar tubes. Yeah. Because this is way back before PVs were commonplace. So we put in yeah. the solar tubes for the solar water heating. And then a thermal store. Oh, yes, Michael did the thermal store. And with a thermal store, you can have a completely outrageous number of solar tubes because they would actually blow up a normal heat, heating hot water cylinder. Mm -hmm. But because the thermal store is 450 litres of water, it can heat it up to 90 degrees if it likes, and you just store the heat in the uh -huh. yeah. yeah, you showed me the thermal store yesterday. So this cylinder is taller than a person. Yeah. Fatter than a person. Yeah, some people. <laughs> yeah. 450 liters of water yeah, in it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's getting heat from the solar yeah. tubes as well as um, the wood burning stove. Yeah. The wood burning stove releases heat to the room it's in, but also heating the, the water. The yeah. Water. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's a boiler behind it. There was another place. And it gets heat from the photovoltaic panels, which are relatively new, which generate electricity. Mm -hmm. So they can run the immersion heater in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, you have to be on the right tariff to make sure you've got um, a supplier that's um, giving you cheap rate electricity overnight. Yeah. So we've also got this battery. So if we have, if we have to buy electricity, we pay 7p a kilowatt mm -hmm. uh, instead of 40p a kilowatt mm -hmm. during the That's day. Right. So you only buy the little bit extra that you would need yeah. during the night. Mm -hmm. And you have now a big Tesla battery that stores the electricity. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So just so our listeners can understand, a thermal store is a big tank of water and it's receiving heat from all these various sources. Yeah. And then how does that water in the tank actually heat and power the home? Okay, you'll be amazed how clever it is. It's uh -huh. classic British eccentricity, this engineering is amazing. The bottom of it is always relatively cool mm -hmm. because hot, air, hot water sits on top of cold water. Mm -hmm. So a pump pumps the bottom water around, around the radiators whenever we want it to. Mm -hmm. um, so we need quite big radiators, um, which we have. Um, and the water from the top, anytime anyone turns a hot tap on, triggers a heat exchanger, which immediately instantly steals heat from the thermal store and puts it into the cold water and turns it into hot water. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so you have hot water whenever you want it, yep. plentiful amounts. You can run the hot water from the thermal store, which is cooler, but still very hot through yeah. the radiators yeah. whenever right. you want central heating coming. Right. And you can have heat from the stove. Yeah. Yeah. And then your electricity from the hot water is going into this battery. And no, that's what's no, happening. no, no. The electricity is coming from the PV panels, uh -huh. which are a relatively new installation. Uh -huh. And so that uh, electricity that's generated by the solar panels goes into the Tesla battery. Yeah. And it sits in the Tesla battery until you want to put a light on or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then it comes out of the battery and powers the light. Uh-huh. And okay. if you've used up most of what's in the battery, the battery charges itself with a little bit of energy from the grid in the night. Yeah, correct. Yeah. But only from the night. Uh-huh. And then it does something amazing. Mm -hmm. You are not going to believe this. Yeah. 
in the middle of the night, it will telephone Elon Musk, mm -hmm. who will tell it what the weather forecast is for next day, on the basis of which it will decide how much to charge itself. So if it's going to be cloudy and dark next day, it'll charge itself quite a lot. It'll charge itself from the grid. Mm -hmm. yeah. Over the night. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. And if it's going to be a lovely sunny day, Elon Musk and the battery will jointly decide not to, not to take any electricity because it knows it'll be fine next day. Uh -huh. That is genius. It is. So genius. sometimes we're quite we're quite angry with Elon Musk sometimes when he gets the weather <laughs> forecast wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it is a bit unpredictable that way. Uh -huh. <laughs> but you've never had a, a time where you you just had to sit here in the dark. And well, we just put the light on and pay the extra. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think what's so good about that the system with the battery is that you don't have to think, oh, it's sunny, I better put the washing machine on. Right. Because you know that you can put the washing machine on at any time because mm -hmm. you've got stored electricity. Yeah. So it takes all that worry away of, you know, that wasted electricity. Exactly. Yeah. So the living off grid is actually less stressful because you have fresh air and wind and yeah. water and, and space and all of that but it's yeah. also less stressful because your energy supply is actually more stable yeah 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 and our water also is off-grid yeah so we've got a spring mm -hmm. which has caused us anxiety this summer because mm -hmm. uh, we haven't had a lot of rain so yeah so apart from that yeah we're fine What's amazing about the spring, not only does the water taste amazing and you feel great, mm -hmm. um, but you were saying, Michael, that it only needs to trickle yeah. for there to be enough. Yeah. It doesn't need to be a gushing river. No. Just a little bit no. from the earth is enough, which yeah. to me has profound philosophical mm. um, uh, yeah, implications, yeah. Mm -hmm. you know? It does require a lot of digging because you haven't seen it, but there's a really huge water storage tank up there, mm -hmm. which an old fool called Len and I, we decided to see what it would be like to dig by hand. Just We, we took a couple of spades and thought we'd just take a couple of spits out. Mm -hmm. But because we're both crazy, we just carried on digging. <laughs> so we dug this enormous hole. <laughs> that's, so that's where the water is. Uh -huh. So yeah. there's an actual tank in the hole. It's not a hole made of mud. Yeah. Uh, no, it's no. concrete. It's concrete. And with a special line, special painted on surface that is uh -huh. um, toxic proof and waterproof. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But we drink directly from the spring. Okay. The drinking tap is directly from the spring and yeah. the water for washing up and etc. Showers. Yeah. Comes so, from the tank. Uh -huh. So if anyone wants to do this, it gets complicated because you've got like two sets of plumbing systems really running. Yeah. So you mm -hmm. do, it can get complicated. But you've basically taught yourself, haven't you? Um, yes. With the help of the internet. Um, yeah. When I started doing my own plumbing in London and well, everything, there was a company down the road called Sprat, Sprat, Sprat and Sprat, which was a plumbing company. Uh-huh. And <laughs> thing is if you don't bullshit if you just go and say look i need to put in a new hot water system but i don't know how to do it they'll spend forever telling you how to do it so yeah that was really how i learned yeah and that was grandfather sprat great grandfather sprat father sprat and little sprat <laughs> <laughs> only in this country <laughs> i love it <laughs>
right. Yeah, yeah. So um, let's take a little sidetrack here. Tell me a little bit about how the two of you met. Uh, well, I can remember how we met. <laughs> we used to have a meditation class in the barn. You did, not me. I did. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It went on for years. And um, uh, one night this person walked in. And it's actually, life is amazing because um, uh, just something, something jumped in here. I had no idea what it was, but I definitely felt something jump. Anyway, that was Pat. And things kind of... <laughs> Things went on from there, really. <laughs> I'd been on my own for years. <laughs> so that's my story. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, my story is that... Um, you were late and on the phone, by the way. Oh, I always am. Yeah, I always was in those days. Um, what's my story? Let me think. Oh, yes. Um, I've been interested in yoga for a long, long time. And I've just been going through a period where I didn't have... Um, Sangha, a, a, a um, community around me or places to go to um, to talk those sort of subjects. So I was feeling a bit that I needed that. Anyway, a friend of mine told me that there were some meditation classes going on and she and I decided to go. And that's where I met Michael. Uh-huh. I walked into the barn here. Actually, for a start, you get to the top of the hill and you think, my God, you know, who can possibly live in such a beautiful place? Mm. And uh, turned out to be Michael. Uh-huh. <laughs> that's uh-huh. how it began, really. But it took a long time. Mm. We didn't. Mm. We didn't. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't move in here for another five or six years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So that was us. And while I was interested in yoga, Michael was interested in Sufism. So they're so similar in lots of ways that mm-hmm. we had quite a lot in common. Exactly. Tell us a little bit about your spiritual path and the yoga and the lineage that you're connected to. Yeah. Okay. Um, I started to practice yoga when I lived in Paris, wanted to do something non-competitive saw a sign up for a yoga class so I thought I'd try and I had a very nice yoga teacher but like you actually thinking about it she was. Uh-huh. and uh, and it was all in French but it was fine you know so I could manage that and uh, then when I came back to the UK I again sought out some yoga classes again found somebody quite interesting to have classes with she, I suppose, saw potential in me and invited me to become her stand-in when she was not teaching. Um, so I started to teach. And then I did a yoga wheel of, no, it wasn't, it was yoga for health clubs training course to become a teacher. Then we had um, a, an Indian Swami who came from his ashram in Holland through a contact of his to teach or to develop a group just around the corner from where we lived, mm-hmm. which was unheard of. You know, it's yeah. just un- absolutely unheard of. Anyway, so um, I was invited to go to his, where he was staying, and he just said to me, you come here tomorrow at this time. And I said, but I can't, I can't. I've got so much to do. You know, we were running a little farm at that time, and animals to feed and all that. But somehow or other, I was always there whenever he said he had been. So anyway, he he not only taught the Hatha Yoga, which is the asanas, the physical postures, 
but he taught very deeply the philosophy mm-hmm. behind it all. So mm-hmm. that was the interest for me. Yeah. And what interested me most about it, what it sort of confirmed how I felt deeply within. So there was a deep resonance mm-hmm. that what he was telling us about made so much sense and spoke to me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it gave me quite a lot of confidence, really, that I was okay as a person. You know, it was, mm-hmm. yes, it was fine because my marriage was going through quite a difficult period. So it was wonderful. You know, yeah, and we formed an organisation and... The rest is history, really. We're still, mm-hmm. We're still there uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, in the UK. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah, what are the chances that an Indian Swami comes to settle in Wales? Yeah, well, <coughs> excuse me, he didn't settle in Wales. He was only here for two weeks every year. Oh. <laughs> so but we only met him a few yeah. times, but he insisted we go to Holland for their conferences, so probably for four or five years before he died. Yeah. We had quite a lot of contact with him. Mm-hmm. And then an organisation grew in the UK uh-huh. from that basis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Very profound. Very profound. Your understanding of the Yoga mm. Sutras is quite deep. Mm. And um, and I'm wondering how that's um, related to your relationship with land and earth. Well, I suppose land and earth are the same as we are. Mm-hmm. You know, it's they're just as divine as we are so if you look after the earth you look after yourself and it's not only yourself it's the whole of society so if we think that we are the same as everybody else you know we have yes divinity is within everything so it's that connection with divinity really that makes you grounded to the earth because the, the earth needs us, but we need the earth more than the earth needs us. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's always been our philosophy of, of growing things and tending, nurturing the earth and looking after it. So when Michael puts a pile of earth, of rubbish, on something that's growing, you know, I get really quite angry, don't I? So we have to move it off so that the, <laughs> the earth can do it. You know, the worms, etc., can still have their little homes. Uh-huh. Instead of being squashed and pushed. Uh-huh. So you have to be. <laughs> uh-huh. so there's a deep reciprocity with the divinity of everything, yeah. even the earthworms. Yeah. Yeah. Especially the earthworms. <laughs> <laughs> without the earthworms, you wouldn't have the soil structures mm-hmm. and all micro microbes in it, which feed us all. Every cell of our body needs that food mm-hmm. in the right, you know, in its right form. Right. This is such a wonderful understanding that um, those of us who have been living in cities and towns just miss, like in terms of also the spiritual path, pursuing a deep spiritual understanding or an ecstatic experience. Um, And when we bring it right back down to the earthworm, the components of the soil are actually the basis of life and actually therefore divine, the basis of divinity that sort of turns all of our seeking and our need for big experience right on its head. Well, for me, it does. Yes. I'm not saying that everybody's path is the same, but Mm -hmm. for me, I didn't, I don't have a a longing for the big experience Mm. in my 
I prefer to put it into the, you know, make the connection mm -hmm. through everything. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, it just shows when you talk about the garden and when you talk about your spiritual practice, your eyes light up in the same way. <laughs> and it's such a beautiful light. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> Can't help it. <laughs> um, Michael's path was completely different. Yeah. Me. Tell us a little bit about your spiritual path. So you've been leading meditation classes, but there's, there's a big context. Yeah. Yes, I think I have a much more stubborn approach to 